Hello, everyone. I'm Manny Fernandez, the Houston Bureau Chief for the New York Times. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the second annual Texas Tribune Festival and to today's panel on educating the emerging Hispanic majority with our panelists, Saditha Brown, Daniel King, Shirley Reed, and Juliette Garcia. Uh, Saditha Brown is president of Excellencia and Education, a Washington-based national nonprofit group working to accelerate Latino success in higher education. She started her career here at UT and later went on to serve as executive director of the White House Initiative for Educational Excellence for Hispanic Americans under President Clinton and U.S. Secretary of Education Richard Riley. Daniel King is the superintendent of the FAR San Juan Alamo Independent School District, a border school district serving nearly 32,000 students, 99% of whom are Hispanic, and 89% of whom are economically disadvantaged. He has led bold initiatives to dramatically decrease the dropout rate, transforming his school district into a state and national model for dropout prevention and recovery. Uh, sorry. Uh, Shirley Reed is the founding president of South Texas College, a community college in McAllen with 31,000 students, 96% of whom are Hispanic. South Texas College has the largest dual enrollment program in the state, allowing high school students to get a head start on college by taking courses for which they earn both high school credit as well as college credit. Uh, Juliet Garcia is the president of the University of Texas at Brownsville. Under her leadership, the campus has significantly grown with its total fall enrollment increasing from roughly 7,000 students to 17,000 students and her work has been recognized by Time Magazine, which named her one of the 10 best college presidents in the country. Our panel discussion will last 60 minutes and will include a 15 to 20 minute period for questions from the audience. I'd like to remind everyone to please turn off your cell phones, unless of course you are, you are tweeting, um, then it's okay. <laughs> um, our theme today starts with the demographic shift that took no one by surprise. Uh, last year, Hispanic children, for the first time, became the majority of students enrolled in Texas public schools. At that point, 2.5 million of the state's public school students were Hispanic, up from 1.6 million Hispanic students a decade ago. The changing demographics in Texas's elementary, high school, and college classrooms come at a time of unprecedented budget cuts, and also at a time when Hispanics across Texas are struggling to boost their political power and representation. I'd like to start by asking our panel, um, how has this Hispanic majority population in our schools changed business as usual? What are our more of or less of to educate this population? Anyone? I'll go first. <laughs> I would um, say that 
we haven't had any changes at South Texas College because we have always been committed to serving a population of our region of whom 96% are Hispanic. So um, we began with that focus in mind. Uh, we've learned how to do some things really well to help Hispanic students be successful. And we just have to do more of it, and we have to do it faster and with less resources. And I would, I would concur with that uh, for... For us in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, I really think, I know, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, testifying before the legislature and looking at decisions that were being made, uh, you know, one of the things that I used to say very strongly is uh, the need to keep in mind that every year that passes, the rest of the state will look more like the Rio Grande Valley. And uh, I think uh, at this point, the state may be just beginning to to, to wake up that, to that fact, but uh, really that's the demographics. I've, uh, my career in education, I'm in my 36th year, and that's uh, basically the demographics that uh, that we have always dealt with. I think uh, I think in our area, you know, we've really learned as uh, the state has made changes, as accountability has come in, as all the other expectations have raised. You know, we've learned. You know, uh, you know, not to make excuses, but but to really roll up our sleeves and work hard. I think one of the biggest changes is that, uh, the rest of the state in the nation is paying a lot of uh, attention to the Rio Grande Valley because the things that uh, m many things that we are working on and proving out and the successes there have have a lot to speak to uh, to, to the rest of the state and to the nation. If I might answer that yeah, also, please. I think that for us what it has meant is that we, d we never assumed that the models, the more traditional models for higher education or for community colleges or for K through 12 are the ones that are best for our students. We've never thought if we could just replicate what they do in Boston or in Chicago or in Houston, then it'll work here. We've had to create new models, and I think that's probably what's very unique about the valley. We've done it earlier than maybe the rest of the state has had to, but we've understood from the beginning that, that, that it takes much more um, creativeness to, to um, provide a system that is friendly, nurturing, and success model for students in our environment. And is that because of the socioeconomic backgrounds of the students? It's or because, it's because of, of a lot of things, right? But, but socioeconomic level is certainly one of them. We, we, uh, we are known for chess in, in Brownsville. And we have thousands of kids who are starting out in fifth and five years old learning chess. Uh, and the reason I mention that is because it's, it's often the antithesis of what you might imagine five-year-olds who are at risk by any federal definition should be doing. And yet, and they're second language learners, they're all on free lunch, uh, and yet they're doing extraordinarily well in chess. So part of what we're doing is studying what is it about the teaching of things like chess to the young bilingual mind that in fact we've discovered advantages the bilingual learner in the play of chess over a monolingual learner. So we're, we're starting at it, I think, as Shirley mm -hmm. said, often not with the deficit model of what's wrong with the kids, but quite the opposite. What do they bring that's really extraordinarily valuable and different, and how can we hone skills in both languages, for example, and, and tailor programs to meet their needs and their strengths. 
And from a national perspective, the, the phenomenon of, of the demographics of Texas is something that um, is happening all over the country. And uh, whether by design or just my great luck, that I'm on a panel with three leaders in a community in Texas that, to Dr. King's point, is emblematic of a, a phenomenon that is going to be growing across the country. And so the, the asset-based approach um, at Excelencia, we do look at national data, we look at demographics, and then we look at uh, college-going patterns among different populations. And it's absolutely true that for Latino students, most of them are the first to achieve that level, whatever the level is, completion of high school, entrance into college, associate degrees, whatever points there are. And so that it brings with it a great deal of dynamics that have to do with information, not so much support for education, but there's just a lot of information that when you're a child growing up with college-educated parents that you know. You know from the time you can talk. Uh, there's the rivalry between your parents of which college to go to or what you're going to study or what fraternity or all of that that when you're the first generation, in, the first person in your family to go to college, you don't have that. This community has been navigating that successfully, not only bringing students into institutions of post-secondary education within the valley, but also for the state and nationally. So as I said, I, I have the great good fortune of thinking about this emerging discussion with a living laboratory, and Texas has that as well. What's going on in the Valley and the solutions that are working there at Excelencia, we've been chronicling it because we want other people in the, in the state and in the country to see how it's done well. You know, you, you talk about the, the sort of the, the college-going culture and, and, and how to sort of foster that. I think we've all heard or experienced for ourselves this, this sort of sentiment in the Hispanic community that, um, in which some parents... Uh, want their children to pursue, uh, you know, go straight into the workforce rather than pursue higher education. How much does that sentiment still exist now? Is it a reality in Texas? And, and if so, what, what can be done about it? It's much less than it was, say, a decade or so ago. Um, South Texas College is a very new community college, only 19 years old. And when the college first began, the biggest resistance to going to college was, I simply can't afford it. I have to go to work. I have to help provide for the family. We have now reached the point where I think it's 62% of our high school graduates are going to college. Um, we've had the good fortune of, as uh, Dr. Garcia said, of putting in place unique practices and approaches to recruit students to help them have the confidence that I can afford college, I can be successful in college, my family will understand why it's important to me, and that's, that's our commitment, and that's why you're seeing such success along the border region. We have really developed some new innovative ways to attract Hispanics to our institutions and unique ways to help them be successful. And much of it is done through partnerships among our institutions. Let me speak to the parents' point yeah, for just yeah. a minute. I spoke to some mothers the other day at a Brownsville Independent School District gathering. And there was, 
so many mothers that volunteer at BISD that they had to break them up into two groups. And the group I had had 750, mm. 760 mothers. Well, it's not hard to talk to mothers about their children's education. And there wasn't a mother there that, that wasn't ready to march off the cliff to make sure her, her child got a good education. So I did the normal, you know, Chamber of Commerce, rah-rah, this is what's possible, and you've got to help your children prepare to come to school. But as I was leaving, is what was startling to me. When I was leaving, I got out into the lobby of the, of the building, and I had several mothers follow me out and want to continue the conversation. One of them had a phone, and she had her son on the phone. Habla conmigo, she said. You talk to my son, because he's having trouble getting into your school, and I want you to talk to him. So she hands me this phone, right? So I get the phone, and I say, this is Dr. Garcia. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, Dr. Garcia. I, I told my mother I was registering. And I said, well, you'd have a wonderful mother, son. You better listen to your mom. I hung up and got to the car, and I, I was telling my staff on the way back, how, how fortunate we are that we have this kind of poder, this kind of support among mothers and families. What we have to help them do is figure out what that means, how to use it better. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the answers to all of that yet. But I know that this year we're going to be working on, and the, the analogy I use is the March of Dimes. Remember the Mar Mother's March of Dimes that helped solve, help eradicate along with some scientists the, the notion of polio in our kids. I think it's going to require a massive movement of the very people who want this the most. And I've never talked to a, a, a humble mother or father that didn't want more for their kids. It's just a matter of figuring out how do you help them, how do you help them get there. What happened in the Valley to, to sort of eradicate that, that sort of notion that, that, you know, yes, you know, in the long term, pursue higher education because that is that is the best thing for you? Uh... You know, I don't think any, there was any, ever any difference. I think what we've discovered, we did a little study and, and, and asked students from, from another university up the state versus ours to prioritize four things. School, family, work, maybe it was just three things. School, family, and work. Uh, in the valley, well, the up, outside of the valley, it was school, these were university students, school, then work, then family. At our university, it was family, then work, then school. So if students have to make decisions about what to do semester by semester, and the family needs for me to stop out because someone's ill, or the family needs for me to do something else, that has a higher priority. It's not that they don't want the school, they don't want the work, but I think that, so, so maybe that's part of what that cultural shift, it's not a bad thing, to have as a strong family value, just to figure out how to how to capture it and use it to help us in this process. I think there's a, you know there's a number of of things involved, and definitely I would agree that 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 sentiment of uh, putting work first has definitely declined, uh, particularly over the last ten to fifteen years. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a combination of things. I think everything from accessibility, having South Texas College open up in McAllen where there was not a community college in, in the Upper Valley, for example, the growth of uh, UT Brownsville, um, and, and those different things. So accessibility has, has increased, and of course that accessibility is, is huge. I think messaging, 
Also, though, the reality is that the, that the world is changing and the economy has changed. So, for example, migrant farm work is way down. Uh, there are far less migrant farm workers in the valley today than there were um, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago as a percentage of the population. Um, so uh, options and, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe, maybe other things that, uh, that maybe caused uh, families in terms of survival to, uh, to, uh, um, to, ha to where, where work and the type of the work, work that was done interfered more is, you know, is decreasing. Farm work in general, not only migrant farm work, but farm work just there in the valley, manual farm work, there's less of it than, than, than there used to be. And then for, I think for all of us, the economy is changing where I think, uh, uh, of course, like anyone else, uh, the Hispanic parent always wants the next generation to be better off than themselves. And uh, Hispanic parents will sacrifice so that the children will have a better education. So that you know has existed, but I think access, I think more, 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 more assistance, more emphasis, I think a, a realization in living through the changing economy, where if you don't have skills, you you either uh, you know if you don't have a certification or a degree of some type, then employment options are limited and often uh, uh, you know unemployment. The valley still has uh, not as high as it used to. But the valley still has very high unemployment. It's still an area that, that that's one of the leading areas in the nation in terms of, you know, of unemployment. So those stark realities are also a factor. And you also have institutional leaders who understand the community well, who move on the premise that this is a community that believes in education, and who are very innovative about your use of strategies, um, what you're doing with work study, um, the fact that there is this passion to uh, be self-fulfilling, to be able to support your family. How do you do that? You don't have, you don't have to force a choice. If you are uh, nimble and you use work-study programs effectively, you can not only be a source of income, but you can also be a, a source of skill basis. You can build that out. I, um, I, my job on this panel is to brag about them. So every opportunity, expect <laughs> that to come out of my mouth. That's fine. That's fine. Um, uh, Sudita, uh, Texas has been thinking about and talking about this problem for a long time, this question of, of why colleges have so much trouble recruiting Hispanics. Um, can you tell us about a conversation you had more than 20 years ago on this same subject to see w what has changed and, and what may be have stayed the same. So this is the benefit of getting to meet your moderator on the phone, you know, the day before the panel and flapping your mouth. And so now I have to tell you the same story I told him. Julieta's actually heard this story. So I was a student here at UT Austin a long time ago, and um, I was a student activist. Um, I was someone who thought the university could and should do more. Um, and I decided I was going to go get a job and make some money to go to graduate school. And then I got a phone call from the graduate dean. And so I really thought that I was going to have a conversation with the graduate dean about what I was going to be when I grew up. And somewhere in the conversation, I realized he wasn't asking me what I wanted to study. So I, I 
you know, I, I said, okay, we're going to figure out what's going on here. And I said, so what would be the best outcome of this discussion? And he said to me, well, we would find someone who would help us build a minority recruitment program. And my reaction to it is, okay, we're going to have some fun now. Because this, I wasn't supposed to be in this conversation. So he asked me, and this is an, a wonderful, phenomenal man who I grew to admire greatly. But this gentleman asked me, so Ms. Brown, why do you think the University of Texas at Austin has such difficulty recruiting Mexican-American and black students? Selective stupidity. <laughs> Excuse me? And I said, well, here's the way I see it. The university wanted a Gutenberg Bible. There were not many in the world. You had to go and search for it, and then you had to raise a whole lot of money to go buy it, and then you had to go and build a museum to be able to show it. But you wanted, a, you wanted it, you got it done. Every year, you want to win nationals in terms of football. That means you have to have a very comprehensive program. You have, and every year, we, más o menos, we pull it off. You are asking me, in the state of Texas, why you can't find Mexican-American and black students? Selective stupidity. So I thought, you know, it was done. I'd leave, have a nice life, go... He goes and offers me the job. I mean, then I have to go back, and then I have to figure it out. And it took 15 years. And when we started, the university was not well known for what it was doing in terms of Latino PhDs and not at all well known for African American. We were still dealing with the legacies of desegregation. We were still dealing with profound disparities in terms of resources. But over 15 years, in a very systematic way, meeting the faculty, meeting the administrators, and always building on this bright, light, burning desire by Mexicanos, by blacks in this, in this state, to, to be the best, to be future faculty. When I left in 1993, we were number one in terms of Latino PhDs, and we were top 20 in African American. And that life lesson of what can be done with sustained effort is a life lesson I carried with me for this extended stay in Washington. I did not think it was going to be so long. And even now, I mean, after this wonderful day of education panels and all these great discussions and what's coming for the legislative session and the whole thing, I still go back. I mean, I still listen to all of this. And it's so clear to me that it is not a question of what are the actions? I mean, we can always refine them. Don't get me wrong. We, it's, the tactical plan always has to be refined. But what drives that? What absolutely drives that? Are we serious? Uh, do we really look at the population that is Tejano, the population that is Texas? We can talk about the growth of the numbers of Hispanic children in our K-12 system. But are the power structures of Texas truly looking at that as the growth of human capital, as an economic driver. Because if we are, then there is absolutely no reason to break your stride. You build and develop where the human capital is, you use the strategies that are showing evidence of effectiveness, and you build them out. I still see that more as a, as a process of pockets. I see innovators in places where they dig deep and they make it happen despite, not because of. And I say that sadly, because this is my home. And there's got to be, it's going to happen at some point that we really will have a convergence. Has there not been enough progress? Uh, no, I'm, there hasn't been. I was impatient when I was 22 years old, and I'm well over that now. 
No, there hasn't been. And, and for us to talk about the economy and, and fail to, to see the, I'm, I do see it as a one-on-one. -on -one. When you see human capital and you don't invest in it, how can you expect other outcomes? Well, you can expect other outcomes because you have inspired individuals, you have visionary leaders, you have people who say, I'm going to get it done despite rather than because. And we're lucky that that happens. But how long do we make it that hard? When do we say that this moment, not another census, but this moment is when we really hold in a public accountability discussion, we hold those who can choose where to invest accountable for their investment decisions. I, I have to follow because if she's just got it right on target, of course. <laughs> and then something that Danny said earlier um, also drives me to say something. Uh, when you were asking, what is it that has changed that, that's now creating this new momentum in the Valley? And one of the things that, that Danny mentioned was opportunity. That is, you see that first rung of students in your family, the first student to get a certificate, the first student to get an associate degree. And all of a sudden, that cracks that door open. We found with mothers, when we were doing, and there's the mothers again. There's something about mothers this year that's going to haunt us unless I pay more attention to it. But in the, in the gear-up programs, remember the very first gear-up programs, one of the three features of a gear-up program is to get the mothers involved in understanding what the process was going to be to gear their kids up, starting out in seventh grade, to be ready to go to college. When we would be teaching mothers about how to help their children, they would learn it themselves. And pretty soon we were enrolling the mothers before the kids ever got out of high school. And so when a, when a mother comes to college, it, it cracks open that door again. All it takes is one person in the family, a mother, a kid, a primo, a tia, a tio. One person just makes all the difference in the world. And if that person then gets a bachelor's degree, goes on to graduate school or to law school, it flings that door wide open. So I think that's a real, I think that's a very important point that, is that people have seen the success over the years. They, they've seen the success of going to South Texas College. They felt the benefit of having graduated from the University of Texas. And, and there's no need to dwell on the premise anymore. The premise has been proven. If you go to college, you do your family well. And that's one thing that I think we've had to shift as a conversation. It's not only about doing well for yourself. Obviously, it's doing well for your family. You want to help them best do it this way. Second thing, what you were so eloquently saying, Sarita, about the will. Uh, the discussion in the previous panel with the chancellors had to do with who would you annex next? One of the last questions, right? If you were Texas Tech, who would you take on? And there was kind of the one was tried to be funnier than the other and and which is interesting, but 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 not one of them, you know, except our chancellor, said, and he did. He said, "I've got enough to do with what I've got," and and, we, and when he was asked specifically about a medical school, the the answer was, "Yes, we had, we are talking about a medical school in Austin, but we're also talking about a medical school in the Rio Grande Valley, and and how what that means over the next few years." There's a will on the part of Chancellor Sigaroa to make a difference during his time. That's extraordinary. I mean, that's planting a flag. There's a will on the part of our Board of Regents, and they have used that term. We mean to plant a bigger 
flag in South Texas. When I first heard those words, you know, I had to kind of make sure I was in the right room because it's always been us at the back of the room kind of going, and over here, and don't forget, we're here too. Now there is a moment for us, I think, in some of our areas where I know in the UT system where there is a clear, willful um, determination to do something significant during our time. And so I think, I think what Sarita is calling on us to do is very important. That is the state as a whole to take that on. We've done it, surely, with what we can do with the resources and, that we have. But imagine if the state put their resources to this issue. Imagine then what could happen. And so I think you challenge us beautifully. Thank you. Uh, speaking of will and, and determination, uh, Daniel, uh, tell us about your work tackling uh, the dropout uh, problem. Uh, when you arrived at your school district in 2007, 500 students a year were dropping out. Now you've cut that number to fewer than 100 students a year. How did you do it? Yes. Uh, yes. In 2007, the dropout rate for the school district was about double the state average, and today it's down to about a third of the state average. Um, we attacked it really in a variety of things, and the first one was to let the students know we care and really, um, you know, go out and find all the young people that, that left the system. That's something we do annually. Just today, we had 250 uh, volunteers going out to in teams to 80 homes looking for specific students, doing detective work, tracking them down. We do that the whole month of September. Uh, um, so one is going out and finding them, convincing them, talking to their mothers. Uh, I was talking to a mother last, last Saturday, and her daughter had gotten married, had a child, lived in another community, and uh, we were able to, to track down and, 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 and get that young lady to, to, to enroll, to come back and finish. She needed maybe five credits in her exit exam. So one is being very intentional. Um, we track every single student. We follow them wherever they go. If they leave us and they move, to a different state, they move, you know, within the state, somewhere else. We follow up and make sure that they're enrolled where they, where they go. Uh, we call it our stock market report in September. Every, every morning we're looking at how many students have we reconnected and how many do we still have to go. And uh, we call that initiative countdown to zero with the idea that the only acceptable number of, of uh, dropouts is zero and we're getting closer to that every year. Uh, beyond that, then we've put in place very special things, uh, unique things. Uh, in, in 2007, we opened a, a brand new kind of high school. We opened a, uh, an early college high school for dropouts. And this high school is focused on young people ages 18 to 26 years old who did not complete high school. And we go to them with the message, you didn't, um, you didn't uh, finish high school, start college today. That's sort of the uh, uh, what Sarita, I guess, was talking about in looking at a strength model. These are young people who, who uh, you know, who have a lot of potential. So we go and, and we get those young people, and we get them we get them focused on not coming back to high school, but what do you want to do with your future? And so we connect them to the community college, get them going on a degree plan. And then as we're getting them started, we start them with a college success course and then start so... Uh, whatever they're interested in, whether it be that they want to go into a medical-related field or they want to go into welding, whatever it is, we, we help them get on that while we help them finish up their credits and, uh, and uh, 
prepare them for exit exams. In five years, we've graduated just over 1,000 18 to 26-year-olds. Uh, over 200 of those have been over, over the age of 20, 21. So that's had a huge impact. And then we've taken that idea of connecting students to college and inside of our high schools. Um, we're doing probably the most um, ambitious scale-up of early college work in the nation. Uh, we have over 8,000 high school students in our our goal is to connect every single one of those to the next step, uh, whether it be four-year college, industry certification, uh, associate degree. But we want to connect them and get them started before they leave us. So last spring, we had 1,800 students in dual enrollment and, and concurrent enrollment uh, out, out of our student body. We graduated our first significant cohort of 60 students with, that already had an associate degree. Within four years, uh, we anticipate graduating four to 500 with an associate degree already. That's going to turn on its head the, uh, the educational attainment uh, levels in, in our community. Most of the students get an associate degree. All of them are going on for bachelor's, and every one of them has a plan to go on to, 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 uh, to postgraduate education. But in the last five years, we've doubled the number of high school graduates from less than 1,000 to over 1,900. And we've doubled the number that enroll in college after they... Uh, graduate from high school. So it's a matter of being very, very intentional, really investing in them. And what we're doing right now is a very com complex, complicated work of working with 8,000 high school students, trying to help them find, and then trying to work mm -hmm. to, together with the community college and the university. And it's, 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 uh, it's very complex work, but coming together and how can we support each other and scale up uh, and offer dual enrollment courses, and it's very challenging to the to the colleges, and it's very challenging to us. But how can we offer that in the different areas of, that the students are in? And then we offer. Um, Excuse me. The challenging part is there's no money to do this, right. and so when you say challenging in the valley, it means trying to get really creative because nobody has extra money to grow the programs that that Dr. King's mentioning. And then we and then we offer. We have something kind of unique. We we provide uh, one of the biggest for first generation students is just the the process of getting in the door, getting through all the paperwork, getting in the door. Um, and surviving that first year. And so we offer something kind of unique. We offer, we have uh, school district counselor, counseling staff, we call them transition counselors, that the colleges have been nice enough to give us offices on their campus, and they work full-time at the college. And they uh, assist over on the college end on getting our, our students through all, all the uh, red tape of admissions, um, finding out where they're stuck in the system, and helping them to get forward and then giving them uh, advice and, and, and counseling and, and guidance during their first year uh, because the colleges tell us that the young people that make it to the start of year two ha have a very high per, uh, percentage of graduating. So we're working together and now we're figuring out how to do that smarter and better, um, how to, because there's always a problem with counselors of getting to everybody. So we're trying to figure out how to use technology, how to cluster students with common needs and different things like that. But the, the, the whole idea is to, like, uh, you know, Sarita, uh, you know, said earlier, where you have, um, the, you know, the, the household where the parents have been to college and the debate is which college is better at all, to a household where that's, a, that's like talking about Marsh or something, you know. So having no knowledge, you know, of what it takes and having no, you know, maybe having all the godness in the world that, you're, that, you're, that your child goes to college, 
but not having under any understanding what to do when he comes home or she comes home and says, you know, they didn't let me in or I, you know, I didn't have this or that or the other. And the, the parent or family members have no idea in the world of, you know, where would you go to, you know, to overcome that or intervene in that situation. I mean, it sounds like to, to, to tackle this issue of, of, of dropout prevention and, re- and, and recovery, you've had to redo the whole sort of notion of, of your job and, and your staff's job. I mean, you guys are going out knocking on doors of people who dropped out, I, I assume, a couple years ago, right? Sometimes just didn't return this year. Sometimes, you know, several years ago. Um, actually, we've, uh, uh, we've had, uh, you know, a few, not too many, a handful that have come back to us that are in their 30s that have, uh, we don't, you know, I will say the state of Texas funding t- typically is an issue, but, you know, there is one area that the state is very progressive, and that is that the state does provide uh, funding for young people up to age 26 to go back and get their high school diploma. And that law passed in 2007, and we jumped on it immediately and opened this, uh, you know, this, this high school. And uh, uh, it's being duplicated now more and more around the valley and around the, uh, around the state. But, um, yes, uh, sometimes they've been out for 10 years or, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, we've had students come in and we're looking at what do you need. Well, they need not the, not the end-of-course test and not the tax test, but they need the TAS test because that was the test, you know, when they, you know, when they graduated. So they might need a class and they might need the TAS test. And so we go and we help them, uh, you know, with that. In the meantime, we hook them up with, with uh, Dr. Reed here with the community college uh, you know, do they want to study auto technology? Do they want to study pharmacology? You know, what is it that they, you know, what is it that they would like to, you know, to do with their life where they can, you know, uh, support their family, be work in an area they're interested in, and be a contributor. So, in the, in this time of budget cuts, how how creative did you have to get on the financing? How do you how do you finance these various uh, projects and initiatives and mm-hmm. Well, we do it all different ways, and uh, you know, one thing, and I'll be honest, you have to ask her because I don't know how in the world they do it. But they waive, uh, you know, they waive the tuition for these students. Um, uh, I think they get the which uh, Texas does provide the contact hour funding. Uh, I guess on the next, I don't know how you. I'll let you explain that. I don't want to get into that. But but anyway, they they waive the tuition, and then what we do, we have a, a, a number of different options if the student. Some of the students we bus to the college. Of course, there's an expense in, in busing, so they bus, we bus them to the college, and they sit in the college classes. In other cases, if we have, we have a cohort of students, the college sends us the instructor, and we pay an instructor fee. In other cases, our teacher may have a master's degree in that area, and, and if, they get, if their work gets reviewed and, and qualified by the college, and uh, and they teach the college syllabus. Then sometimes we provide, you know, we provide the the the, the teacher. So there's a, and we we set up academies for you know for efficiency where we cluster students. We've also uh, we also have uh, invited them to move into some of our buildings. And going back to what uh, you know, Julieta said earlier, we find more and more that as we open these opportunities for students, then a parent or a big brother or somebody wants to also get the education. So we're looking at the next few years of moving the community college. We don't have a community college in our community. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're opening up building space and inviting the community college to move in and offer courses not only to our students but to the adult community uh, around because each one that gets in 
impacts more. Let me give you a different uh, uh, an example of something sure. that sure. we did years ago now, and that was to buy a mall. I heard Austin Community College just bought Highland Mall. Well, we bought a mall 10 years ago, and I remember when I told the chancellor <laughs> that we were going to buy a mall, he says, you don't go buy malls, you shop in malls. So I said, well, <laughs> no, not here, because it would have taken us 20 years to get 650,000 square feet if I had waited in the tuition revenue bond line which is the only way universities can get facilities. And so we found that a deal with Simon Properties and the relocation of a mall, that I could get it for less than $5 a square foot, which they donated the difference. And so we ended up setting our shop up at the mall so that we could expand the, the facilities for uh, the community university. So we took lots of our programs and we started them up there to grow them because you cannot, you simply cannot, as fast as we're growing and as good as our numbers are, and they're very impressive. I mean, to imagine a, a, a community college that didn't exist a few years ago, now with 31,000 students, us with 17,000, I mean, at UT Pan American yeah, also, 18, with over 20,000. I mean, it's extraordinary. But as fast as we're growing, the community grows faster than we do. So imagine that we have pent-up demand of years and decades of not having had access that we're dealing with with the older student. And then we have the new younger student, a comedian, a, a Latina comedian, the other day was talking about this notion of, and I'm sorry I can't remember her name, but of, uh, of when is the Latino population uh, demographic shift going to be felt? And she, and she says, you know how people are saying it's going to be 10 years from now and 30 years from now? And she goes, Nope, it was about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> and that's true. It's, it's done. It's here. Um, and that is without, um, without thinking about border crossings. You could close every bridge to Mexico today. I am not proposing this. <laughs> but you could close every bridge from Mexico and, stall, and stop all of the in-migration that our state is getting from all other states in the United States. And the nature of our population in Texas already is such that we are going to be majority, minority, 15 minutes ago, I mean, very soon. So, so, the, so the point is, I think it's very, very important to, to, to get a feel for the kind of work that's being done, not just in the Valley, but the sense of urgency. When people come down to the valley, often they, they, they say, why are you all so much in a hurry? You know, what's so <laughs> urgent? Well, there's a tidal wave hitting the shore. Mm -hmm. and, and we have a choice. Our democracy depends on an educated population. Our democracy. Not the economic benefit of the, of the family. Our democracy requires that we have an educated citizenry. If we don't educate that next wave of student, they will not get vested in our democracy. They will not nurture it. They will not defend it. They will not sustain it. So our job is not only about the economic well-being of a few counties in South Texas or of the state of Texas. It's about the sustainability of our democracy. So it, it takes it up to much more important. And if I may riff on that for uh -huh. just a moment, because sure. The same sort of innovation, the entrepreneurial nature, the quality of leadership that you're hearing about, and the capacity of these 
leaders to then go up against systems, whether they be in the state legislature or as was my opportunity to be with colegas in El Paso when they were bringing it to Secretary Duncan and Undersecretary uh, Cantor to talk about the whole issue of funding and how you merge funding, how you begin to create an educational system that really looks at students, not at the school district and then the post-secondary, but really starts to look in innovative ways at the flow of talent and the flow of systems. When you're in Washington, when you're in the company that I'm in, there is oftentimes, um, not intentional, but the, we're going to have a technocrat kind of conversation. We're going to have a policy discussion. And then we're going to talk about demography. And they keep them separate. And I've had to say over and over again, if you want innovation, you want solutions, you look at leaders who not only solve these problems, challenges, with this community, but then do it in a leveraged kind of way and accelerate it. And then we can go back to the technocratic, let's go to scale. Because the capacity that they have already demonstrated. Now, nobody wants you to have to keep working that hard to produce the results you have because it can't go that fast. But to Texas, to Texas, I would say, it's right here. It's right here. You have the capacity to look at the specifics of these solutions, to see how they walk through and knit it together. And then when you go into the legislative session, use the models that were there and begin to tweak and build out. That's the kind of accountability that we want to start raising on a public stage. We want to say to policymakers who talk about human capital that when you've got innovation here in the state, and you've got people who can lay out how they do it, and you're talking about an investment strategy, well, you invest in this kind of strategy. It's not an asking for more money to pile on because it's not going to produce results. We're asking for funding and building it out. And that's the kind of dynamic on the politics, because the political sessions are going on at the AT&T Conference Center, and we're over here. Well, those folks over there, that's the kind of conversation that now we want to start talking about. Because the commitment to get it done, it exists. But the capacity to do it fast enough, 15 minutes ago, that's the part that has to change. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting if there's any you know, superintendents in the audience or, or who will be watching this is to tackle this one education issue in the Hispanic community, this is what it takes, a school district superintendent working tag team hand-in-hand hand with a president of a community college, having one waive the tuition for the other and completely exchanging ideas. And, and, and you know, it's, it's not everyone in a silo working alone on, on these things. Like, you know, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it, it's its own education, you know. Let, let me add that um, part of um, why we have been successful is the heart we have the heart and the passion for the work. And every superintendent, every school district, every community college in the state has the technical ability to do this same work. What I see is an absence of the heart and the passion. And I'd go on and say that if the state of Texas doesn't truly find a way to educate its largest population, its largest demographic, there is going to be a rather uncertain future for the state of Texas. Um, how can the, the predominant population be the least educated? 
How are they going to contribute to the economy? Who will be our new leaders in the state of Texas if we don't passionately commit to doing this work and getting it done? There just simply are no excuses. I want to maybe give a real good example of what Dr. Reed is saying there. In, in uh, August 2007, I called Dr. Reed and uh, uh, and I, I said, Dr. Reed, uh, I've been in this district about a month and there's a huge dropout problem. I said, I want to open a dual enrollment high school for dropouts, young people ages 18 to 26. And, uh, you know, she'd never heard of such a thing. And she, but she didn't blink an eye, and she said, "Okay, uh, how much planning do we ha time do we have, Danny?" She said, hey, "Are you talking about September 2008, or do we need to gear this up for January? What, what are we talking about?" I said, "Ma'am, we're talking about September 1." Okay, so she's already got her budget made. She's already staffed. I've already got my budget made. I'm already staffed. And uh, you know what? The next, uh, literally, the very next day, she was in my office with two vice presidents, and we sat down. And like I like to tell people, we fell a little short, Dr. Reed, because we didn't open it September 1, but we opened it about September 11th. And uh, we didn't have a building. We, didn't, we rented some space in an old Walmart, which we eventually bought, like the mall. But uh, we didn't have a building. We didn't have a principal. We didn't have teachers. We didn't have a budget. And she didn't have anything for it either. But we had, uh, at that point, we were focusing primarily, I found that there were 237 seniors a year before they hadn't graduated. And I needed something to move those young people forward. And then I wanted to work on to the up to 26. I wanted to work on the prior cohorts that hadn't made it. But like I said, the next day she was at my office. Um, we sat down. We figured it out. It took several meetings to figure it out, but we figured it out. And by about the second week of September, we were up and running. And we had 223 of the 237 uh, high school uh, dropouts or non-completers, we had them. We had them enrolled, and we had them in there, and we were up and running. So that's that's what it takes. Is not you know, there's barriers everywhere, there's excuses everywhere, but it it takes the can do, and it takes like I said, it takes. I couldn't have done that, and she couldn't have done that. But the two institutions together, and so having institutions that are willing to you know, throw everything out and just jump in and do something that's a moral imperative without saying, well, you know, our budget's already done or, you know, our year, whatever, but, but go in there. There's a community issue. Let's, let's, let's solve it, you know. So that's, that's, I think that goes back to what was being brought up here. one example about, about jobs on campus. Because, Quickly, because we've got to open it to questions okay, and answers. Just, to, so, yeah. just to, to know, one of the things we've talked about a little bit is the decisions students have to make about whether they study or whether they work. And so knowing that, we simply created more jobs on our campus uh, and received recognition a few years ago from the coordinating board for one program called the Student Employment Initiative. Every student we put in a job on campus, not delivering coffee to anybody, but in a laboratory or as a teaching assistant, uh, students ended up with a dropout rate of less than, I mean, of well, they, they, they succeeded at over 92% if they were a student in that student employment initiative. They worked on campus. They became engaged. Their GPAs were above 3.64. And they all graduated from high school. So sometimes it's just redoing yourself to, to meet the needs of a student. The second thing is about libraries. When I was a student at UT Austin 100 years ago, <laughs> there were 22 libraries on this campus. And I remember when I got here thinking, 
22 libraries. You know, while I'm here, I'm going to visit every of those 22 libraries. I, I did, eventually. Maybe it was just to sit down and then leave, but I sat there and I, I wanted to see all the... I couldn't believe a place could have so many libraries. UT Brownsville has two. And the last one we just built a few years ago. So when you talk about against odds, and then you put us on the same matrix and wonder, why do they get there faster? Or why do they succeed better? Or why do, you know, you're still talking about a tremendous inequity in the way funds are distributed, the way resources are distributed, to get back to Sanita's point. So if you want us to run the race, just like anybody else, give us the same pair of tennis shoes, and, and, and we'll have a chance to do the same work. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, we're going to open it up to uh, questions. Anyone uh, with a question, feel free to step up uh, to the microphone there. I think there's, there's one there. there may, is there another one? It's one right there. Yes. Yes, please. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Dr. Barbara Mink, and I'm the chair of the Austin Community College Board of Trustees. And yes, we have bought them all. <laughs> and I was really uh, reinforced to hear the word community college, community college, in this dialogue. Because to me, that is the link pin that ties things together from the public schools to the college. Uh, as you folks know, most of the people of color who enter higher education enter through the community colleges. So I want to know uh, what other ways you are working with the community college system so we have this PK through 16 pipeline. How are you getting down and making the community college that strong link? Well, from a national level, um, we have um, tracked college participation uh, from entrance all the way through graduate education. And in a recent uh, brief series on finding your workforce, we very intentionally dealt with certificates as well as associate degrees as a tactical premise so that you can't even have the conversation without acknowledging that part of the work. Beyond that, in fact, one of the ways that I got to know Dr. Reed is that when we got started, knowing that community colleges is where the majority of Latino students start their pursuit of higher education, we constructed a, a project um, that looked at the role of Hispanic-serving institutions and their role in Latino student success. We knew that while it was community colleges where they started, that the currency was a baccalaureate degree. So we started with a, a cluster of BA-granting institutions, but we always said in a sister relationship. And so again, it was UT Pan American and South Texas College. And so the, the primacy of the role of community colleges, I think, is there in a policy discussion, and definitely in the Obama administration, it has been sort of the heyday. But I think that the stretch that we're coming into right now with the leadership of the membership organization with Walter Bumpus and, uh, uh, and Shirley Reed on the board of that organization to really deal with the synergy of tactics as well as now this high-profile role for community colleges is an opportunity to step into. And then we elevate really wonderful examples. On a practical level... Dual enrollment is one strategy to create the college-going culture. Um, at South Texas College, we have almost 12,000 students participating in dual enrollment, tuition-free. 
We have 15 early college high schools. We even have an adopt the elementary school program. So if your heart is there, you can forge wonderful partnerships. Yes, next question. Hello, <clears throat> can you hear me? My name is Bill Castillo. Um, I think this is a very engaging conversation. I started today, today uh, hearing Ted Cruz and uh, Julian Castro, the future of Texas politics, and I just can't, um, it just seems that they're tied together, higher education with Latinos and, get, and the, the future of Texas politics. My, my question this morning and the same question I have right now is, how do you engage the Latino voter if they're going to be the dominant demographic in the state? How do you engage the young Latino voter? How is education tied to that, to that question? And how is that going to change future generations to come? I don't know that I have the answer, but I'll, I'll start out by saying that, that you're absolutely right. And what we know generally is that the more educated a person is, the more likely they are to vote. So you just kind of have to assume that, that that's going to be the case. Uh, we have become a voting precinct uh, on our campus, much to the dismay of some of the folks in our community. Um, and, and, but we decided that that was going to be important for us. We become a center. Um, we've applied for and received the um, Carnegie um, uh, for the Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching certification as a campus that's civically engaged through service learning. So we're trying to do everything we can to, to uh, explain to students that they're becoming good citizens, they're becoming engaged citizens. Have we had significant impact of the kind I'd like to brag about? No. It is still so hard to get students engaged in the voting process. We have difficult dialogues. We have all kinds of things that we orchestrate. But, but I would be pleased to hear from anyone else who I'm, might have a better solution because we're not activating the Latino population through an educated and informed manner. Uh, and we need to, or will not make a difference. I, I think, I don't, again, it, it is challenging. I don't have the, the answer per se, but I think, you know, the same situation that, um, you know, young people, when they drop out of school, they often don't see either the relevance or they don't see, <clears throat> they don't see a success experience with that. And I think that we have not yet come up with a way to really, uh, you know, impart the relevance and to to really, in a meaningful way, show the connection to success with with that engagement. And I, th you know, and I think that's the challenge to 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 really make that that connection in a real and meaningful way. And I think once that does occur and does build momentum, then that's when you're going to really see it. On a tactical level, um, you keep trying. So in the case of uh, Excelencia's work, we have a national initiative called Ensuring America's Future by Increasing Latino College Completion. There are 65 national partners, 
Uh, among them are the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, uh, which has a whole series of interns, uh, Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities, HACU has internships, uh, Chile, which is the Congressional Hispanic Leadership uh, Institute. Um, with all of those, we say, let's put the two together, let's keep the message simple. We have conversations with Voto Latino in terms of their uh, grassroots kinds of efforts in different areas of the country where you raise up education. All the polling data in terms of Latino voters, Republican, independents, Democrats, education is among our top issues. It's not immigration, it's usually education. And how then they see the outcomes of any election being directly affecting their education, their family's education. I think that's the way we do it, but I don't think we've cracked that nut. Um, they, you know, I grew up in the time where Corky Gonzalez used to talk about the sleeping giant. Orale, it's time for him to wake, or her to wake up. <laughs> yes, next question. Hi, my name is Christian Cabasos, and I am currently in the last semester of my graduate program. Throughout my graduate degree, I've been teaching at Texas State University, and I've run into two major issues in serving and educating the Hispanic majority, which I'm also a part of. The first is mentorship. By the time these young Hispanic students get to my classroom, they've lost that counselor that they might have had in high school or that person they could go to for guidance. And so they're sort of... I know this is the path I should be going on for college, but at some points they get lost, and at some points they just, they, it, it becomes a disengagement. You know, I lose them in, in certain areas. And the other is the lack of professors that look like them, that reflect their culture. I've had so many students tell me, you're the first Hispanic woman I've ever taken a class from, and I think I'll have to leave this school with you being the last. And I think that there is a certain amount of they don't feel like they're being represented, even at a school like Texas State University, where it, it remarks on how it is this Hispanic-serving institution. And I think that in many respects that it is. But I think that I'm definitely, you know, being a part of this community, I'm, I'm losing them and I'm trying to keep them. And I'm wondering, how do you assume that we tackle this problem? How do I continue to make sure that these students can find mentors the way I did? I'm in a very different category. I have very well-educated parents. Like, I knew I was going to college from day one. I think I was born in a onesie with different universities on it. But I don't, I'm serving a Hispanic population that does not have that. And they lose the mentors that they once had in high school. And they get to college and they say, nobody looks like me. What makes me think I can navigate this journey without anyone else there that could understand my struggles, my family life, my community, the values that I come from. And so I'm trying myself to come to terms with building a bridge for them. But from amazing educators like yourselves, I was wondering, have you faced these struggles and how do you deal with them? Two good questions. We have put in place a number of mentor, mentor programs. Um, some are much more successful than others. And actually, the greatest struggle we have is providing mentors for young Hispanic males. Um, you have a tremendous opportunity to develop a very innovative program at the university and perhaps a model for reestablishing that mentor relationship that those students so desperately need. Yeah, it is part of the solution. And I, I would... Again, you know, two things. One, that that is one of the reasons why in our district we set up the transition counseling program 
to provide some of that. It's not a mentoring program, but to provide some transition support uh, on to and through the first year in college. But the other thing I would mention is, uh, you know, don't never undersell what what you can do and take advantage of recognizing that to to you know to set up a pilot to propose things to your university because at the end of the day what makes a difference here is what each one of us does in the setting we're in and refusing to accept that it cannot be done and looking for ways and looking for partners and uh, to to come together and, and, and to do it. And I think the interpersonal is probably the best, but there is a growth of online uh, solutions. Um, the Hispanic Scholarship Fund is doing it. The Hispanic College Fund is doing it. In fact, we've, we've had an opportunity to visit uh, an hour or so earlier and that there are students who are trying to develop some, this kind of thing online. But I do think you see a need and step into it. On the issue of faculty, um, I, you know, I can't tell you. Um, it, it is a heartbreak for me personally to see that Latino doctoral recipient numbers are what they were when I started in 1980. We are actually seeing on colleges and universities across this country people renegotiating their retirement dates because the, the one, the only Latino, Latina, because they're not going to leave until at least they are replaced. And that, I, that's, you know, that goes back to the impatience. I mean, it, nothing is, it doesn't happen naturally. Just because there are a lot of us, it doesn't mean there are a lot of us where we need to be. And that issue of the faculty, and when I get on my stump speech about that one, for your students, yes, they should see someone like themselves. But the liability, the intellectual liability, for students who go through a college education and do not see Latinos in intellectual positions, who do not see them in the role of thought leaders, that is profound. If really we, we keep perpetuating a society that you only, for some portion of our society, you only see Latinos when you go to hotels and they clean your rooms, or you only see Latinos in terms of groundskeepers, but you don't see them in boardrooms and you don't see them in those environments. That, that in terms of being educated, college educated, that's where the liability is on an intellectual and academic basis. So I, I, let's work on that one. Juliet, I think in 1986 you were named president of Texas Southmost College. And I believe at that time you were the first Mexican-American woman to be named president of a college or university in the nation. Is that, is that correct? What, what, what do you see now in, in, in the leadership positions? Having to renegotiate retirement until somebody comes <laughs> to pay. Like, yeah, last time, an old lady. Shouldn't it be time for me to leave? Um, you know, uh, I can tell you that we have reached out beyond the United States for faculty into Central and, and Latin America and have been very successful. And, and uh, so that's one thing, is that you have to kind of reach further out into the world. And is that because you, you reached out in the state and in the nation? So, so our physics department, some of our chemists, some of our biologists are from Uruguay, from Peru, from Argentina, from Brazil, from Colombia. Some of our chess, I mean, I'll, I'll get people anywhere. And once you get them kind of in, in, a, in a group moving together, then the force is, is tremendous. So you have to reach to other places. You know, we don't live on the edge of a chasm 
south. We really, there is a whole other continent <laughs> below us. And sometimes we look only north or northeast or northwest. And, and there, are, there are lots of other places to go out and recruit good faculty that can come and do the work, like at Texas State University, in English and in Spanish, and want to find a place that values them because they're a chemist, but also because they can live in two worlds, or because they're a cell biologist, but they want to be able to do that in two worlds. So we're trying to create a place, a culture in a university that invites the convening of cultures real-time and languages real-time in the, not only the teaching but the production then of that new, of that new kind of graduate. So I think it, it goes back to what kind of a model place you become. We all, you know, the, 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 the model of the university in the United States, if you studied your history and you know it came from Germany, we maybe need a new model <laughs> and, the, and the new model is ours to invent going back to what, what both Danny and Shirley said, wherever you are. And, and whatever the needs of the students are. All right, thank you. Next question. Hi, my name is Jamie Brown. I'm a financial aid administrator and a graduate student uh, here at the university. And first let me say, I was born and raised in the Rio Grande Valley, so it's amazing to see such leadership here on stage. So thank you for being here. Um, my interest has always been in uh, parent support programs for first-generation and underrepresented students. And we talked a little bit about, or you guys talked a little bit about how important family is to, um, when it comes to matriculating from high school to college and retention and graduation. Um, my question is specifically for Drs. Reed and Garcia. Do you see anything on the horizon, or do you have anything right now at your uh, institutions that are um, specifically for um, parents or, or the relationships with parents of first-generation and underrepresented students? I'll speak to one that we're just beginning. We're um, inviting a group of, I have been corrected not to only say mothers, but to say mothers and fathers. So I stand corrected. Uh, and so, so our provost came up with the idea of saying university, colon, a family affair. And so when we accept our nursing students, for example, we, in, in the um, orientation program for nursing students, we invite the family to come to the orientation so that we can make sure that everybody understands what a clinical site is, why their students going to have to be going from one hospital or one clinical site to another, why they won't be home some nights, why some semesters are going to be more difficult than others, because they, the whole family is learning what it means for the student to go through an LVN or an RN program. So we have to change how we approach that. And so I think that's going to be important. We'll know more once we get the family into our planning because we mean to ask them what might be more helpful. Well, an initiative that uh, we're planning and hope to have in place in the next few months is literally reaching out to families and have opportunities for families to just come to the campus, learn about what it means to go to college, how to prepare yourself to help your child go to college. And we have to do it in very informal ways. Um, we have done some, as Dr. Garcia did, where we have the orientation, the first year experience, we invite the whole family, and we'll end up with more family members than students because they really want to learn, how can I help my child go to college? So stay tuned. We'll see how it goes. Good. Next question. Hi. Um, my name is Laura Donnelly Gonzalez, and I'm going to 
founders of Latinitas. We are a nonprofit based here in Austin, and we're in El Paso also. Um, the first digital magazine made for and by young Latinas, and then with like program that is based in empowerment using media and technology. And well, and before I ask my question, I commend you. I feel like this is the mirror image of the last panel that I, you know, the big five were there, and I feel like <laughs> your heart and soul and your passion for the students was the priority discussion here, where I feel like it was a an afterthought there, and and unfortunately. We deal with that, but, I, but it leads me to inquiring to you guys, how are you capitalizing on the nonprofit sector? Because we, we have that mentor-mentee dynamic, and we are serving thousands of girls here and there in West Texas. My buddies here from Hispanic Scholarship Consortium, they're doing um, match scholarships but, scholarships, but with this whole program base where they, you know, the, the kids are getting the the mentorship and leadership they need to carry them through the four-year degree. So how much are you guys looking out to agencies like us that are we're already doing it, and we want to come help you? <laughs> come on down. And with the disclaimer, Dr. Come Reed, on. actually, <laughs> South Texas College has begun a, di a dialogue with us about doing a, like a one-day Latinitas thing where we, you know, we can use media, but we can talk about college entrance. Um, I want, I, are there capacities within the schools, a, a department, a person where, you know, a nonprofit type like ourselves could connect better with the school? The, the Department of Student Services on student any campus, services. just kind of go there first and, and start shopping it around, but, but your next chapter should be in the Valley. And I can CC you guys? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All right, thank you. And uh, for the next uh, questions, if you can make them pretty quick here, we're running a little bit over on time. So, uh, thank you. Some My name is Alex Kappas. I'm a staff member here at UT working in new student services. Um, I'm wondering what your, what, your, what your thoughts are on preparing non-Hispanic, non-first generation faculty, staff, teachers, um, and really preparing them to have the cultural competency, the knowledge, awareness, and skills to be able to work and best serve uh, the growing Hispanic population? It's a good question. Get some quick answers on that one. If I could grab, um, uh, my colleague, our co-founder, likes to use the word ignorance abatement uh, rather than uh, cultural confidence. Um, but we do that on a national level. Um, and the way that we do it is uh, based on uh, these are your students. So it, it starts with here is the data as it relates to who you will be teaching. Here are the, um, the techniques um, that have been proven in institutions across the country that have been very effective. Here are some of the old school thinking that you may still have um, that you might want to check before you actually uh, go into the classroom. We play that role often when talking to institutions because we visit and then we leave. And so we can say the rude thing um, that if someone else were to say might be problematic. I, I think it's a very important question. And I think, again, it's an operational quality of the changing demographics. If we keep talking about it as if it's something only for a policy wonk, you don't get at that. But that's, it is exactly in the classroom. And then you build on assets. Um, we have a great campus, uh, El Camino Community College. And they came up with on their own a, an orientation for faculty where the faculty practice saying the names of their students. It wasn't just names in Spanish. It was simply the names of their students. Because there's ample research that when you pronounce the name well, the student responds well, and that goes, it's universal. But yes, there were a lot of 
names in Spanish that many of the faculty had to learn to be able to speak to be able to have a rapport with their students. Next question. Last question. Hi. Good afternoon. My name is Linda Pena. I'm from Brownsville originally, and um, I'm actually at the law school right now. And a constant problem that I come into is whenever I run into someone from the Valley, um, I ask them, oh, which high school would you go to? And they usually went to a private institution, which makes me not be able to relate to them. I went to Rivera High School, a public one. And so what are you doing to push these low-income Hispanic students at your colleges and universities to pursue a higher education so that we can better represent our communities? Everything we do every day. And as much as we can, as fast as we can. We figure this. Kids that can afford to go to private school are going to be helped by others. And, and it's really, I mean, I don't mean to say that crass, but, but UT Austin comes and recruits our students. Uh, A&M comes and recruits our students. Stanford comes and recruits our students. They recruit about one inch in to the student body. Our job is to take care of everybody else. So we have a student from Porter High School. You know Porter. Um, and he just finished his, finished his degree in cell biology from UT Health Science Center, Houston. Started out at Brownsville. Uh, Porter is called La Porter in Brownsville. You know, kind of a hard place to grow out of. Norma Ganthu knows Porter well, I think. Taught there. You're Hannah. You taught, okay, Hannah High School. <laughs> La Hannah. <laughs> uh, but that young man is now headed toward Yale for a postdoc. So our attention is all, all we, uh, focused on, on that yeah. population. As we've as we scaled that up, as we scaled up the dual enrollment and all of that, we've seen a, we've seen a big increase. This. This past year's graduating class, we just sent the most students ever here to UT Austin, to A&M, uh, uh, to uh, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, Emory-Riddle in Florida, and so forth. And so through this, uh, we've got a, a young lady here at this institution right now that uh, was our first student to get an associate degree from STC, got her uh, bachelor's in engineering and design from Stanford, and she's here at UT Austin right now working on a master-PhD combination program in, in engineering. So I think we are, uh, you know, having that impact and the more that we, uh, uh, and that's the other thing I want to say, when we talk about community college, we're not talking about only the certifications and those things. So for a lot of our students, the community college is the door to, to uh, you know, to, to, to get into these other, these other institutions. And so uh, Stanford University accepted almost all of the hours from South Texas College in engineering for example. So we are having, a, 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 I think, a big, a big impact on that. Thank you, everyone, very much. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to our panelists. Thank you, thank you. everyone, very much. Thank you. thank you. You did a great job, Manny. Yeah. Oh, thank you.